From Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. So welcome to the end of your show. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of glad to just have made it here just about in one piece. This has been one of the hardest years on record. And so we've chosen the best, uplifting, insightful, inspirational little quote from each of our wonderful guests in 2020 to add something pleasant for you. Stocking fillers, if you will, to give you something of auditory pleasure in this most hard of years. Highlights from Temple Grandin, BJ Miller, and many, many of our other fabulous guests. So without further ado, I'll pass you over to our guests in the 2020 end of year review. At the end of last year, I had the chance to speak with Dr. Betsy Charles, who was in yesterday's world pre-COVID, but Betsy had endured some pretty tough stuff. Losing her husband to ALS was one of the biggest challenges she'd had to overcome, but it wasn't the only one. In this short clip, Betsy shares with us her experience of vulnerability, being authentic, and dealing with the subject that failure is not only commonplace, but actually a pretty normal step of the growth journey toward excellence. So when I got ready to take my boards, I I didn't pa- I shouldn't I probably shouldn't have sat the first year. And I di- and I wasn't I didn't feel super comfortable talking about it cuz I hadn't I just I wasn't comfortable in my skin 100% yet. Yep. The second time I didn't pass, I was just like, okay, how long did that take to go through that process? Well, so for it took me four times. And that's four years? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Because you can only take it, right? Well, now they've changed it where you can take it again in December, but you can only take, it's only offered once a year. Yeah. Well, that's commitment. Totally. You're after I it. guess. Yeah. So, well, it's interesting, right? Because I, I remember the first time yep. that I, and it probably wasn't until I passed finally that I started talking about the failures openly. Yeah. And so I remember, so the third time I took it, one of my mentors said, you missed by 12, 12 questions. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, and then when I finally passed the fourth, the fourth try, one of my mentors, total guru, said to me, well, you know, it took me two times to pass the written. Um, I'm sorry. Maybe you should have told me that last year when I was having conversations with you about I don't have what it takes. I'm not sure. Blah, blah, blah. He's like, and this is what he said. He's been in practice 40 years. I don't want people to think less of me. Oh. 40 years he's been in practice and I'm like, dude, nobody cares. But he didn't, he didn't, he didn't want to tell me that he had struggled. And so from that point, I remember just like it was yesterday, the day that I stopped saying I struggled to pass my boards because what does that communicate? Leaves it open to how many times it took me to pass my boards Mm -hmm. to the day that I said it took me four tries to pass my written boards. That was a huge step for me in in front of a veterinary audience to admit, because what do people think? Well, she's not very good. And I would argue, actually, I'm really stinking good at physics now. I'll give any radiologist to run for their money on right. physics now because I know how to do that. But it, it told me something about our profession, right? Like, I can't stand up in front of you and say, it took me four tries to pass my boards. Be now, when I go to my oral... I decided I'm going to do this very transparently and I'm, I know I'm not going to pass the first time I take it. And so I did this whole Facebook thing, like I'm going to, you know, growth mindset. And I learned so much. That's when I, during that process, that four years is when I discovered Brene Brown and shame and vulnerability and all these things. And so, and at VLI, we're interested in those things. And so I did this whole public Facebook thing. And then I got all these messages on my public, on my feed, whatever you call that. Oh, this is great. Thank you. Da, 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 da. And then I got maybe 20 plus private messages, private messages now. Right. Well, you know, it took me three times to pass my boards. You know, I haven't passed the Navly. So all these people, but they don't put it, they don't say it publicly. Right. But they're willing to talk to me about it privately. And I still have people that come up and talk to me and say, I'm struggling, Bessie, because I'm not sure if I can get past my boards. I don't know. You know, everybody, it's it's all these messages. Everybody's disappointed. Well, are they? I don't know. Is that your own message? I'm not sure. But we have a profession that doesn't allow for a growth mindset. Right. Right. So my whole, my whole philosophy is now failure is just an opportunity to learn. And I'm so much better at what I do because of all those opportunities I've had. If 2020 had a word to associate with it, maybe it would be uncertainty. And businesses hate uncertainty. 
That's one of the great things about veterinary medicine, though. It's a very resilient sector. It's endured recession after recession with reasonable levels of growth. So providing certainty in the workplace, although it's been hard, has been one of the attributes of the year. One of the good things. Business very much seems to be booming. In February, Karen Felsted had this message for practice owners looking to differentiate themselves in the market and succeed. I think the practices that are going to be the most successful are the ones that, I mean, good quality medicine in my mind is a given, right? would never suggest that you practice poor quality medicine. But I think the practices that are going to be the most successful are those that have a niche and are providing the non-medicine stuff that that niche wants. A lot of that is convenience, but a lot of that is price too. And so I think it's finding that niche. It's recognizing what is it my pet owners want. Part of that's from a medicine standpoint, right? So, I mean, you're going to have pet owners who love their pets and want to provide the best basic care that they have, but they're never spending $3,000 to diagnose a cat with lymphoma. Just not going to happen, you know? But the practice offers the basic stuff And then also from a client service or convenience standpoint, sees what's important. And maybe that's Sunday hours, maybe it's evening hours, whatever it is. And then also can price it to meet the needs of these various groups of people. So I think more niche practices is going to be successful. Are there any examples of practices or niche businesses that jump out to your mind as doing it right? And can you give, you articulate what it is that they're doing? I think we're all, you certainly see the niche practices at the high end where they're not a a true, they're not a specialty practice because they don't have board certified specialists there, but they're offering high end medicine. They're doing a lot of that surgery you mentioned that doesn't have to be referred, but is done. They tend to charge high fees. It's a high touch kind of a practice. So there's those niches, but there's a very small number of pet owners who either can or choose to pay for that, right? So then you have to look at niches. And then there's a ton of people that are kind of in the middle, this sort of mainstream veterinary medicine. Those don't differentiate one from another very well. But then I think the niches are also interesting at the lower end, because it's all fine to say you shouldn't have a pet if you can't afford to pay for care. But that's just a very flippant way of blowing off the fact that cost is a real issue in veterinary medicine, you know. And so at the lower end, I mean, we see niches now. We see people who go to the two-hour clinics at Pet Supplies Plus and get their vaccinations. And, you know, a lot of mainstream veterinary medicine tends to put that down. But those are people who care about their pets and are trying to do the right thing. And some of that is about cost. Some of it, I think, is actually about convenience. I think they find that more convenient than a typical veterinary hospital. You're starting to see the start of the practices like in Walmart and stuff. They offer more services than the, say, the pet supplies vaccination. They're actually offering some limited medical services. That's a niche, I think, for a group of pet owners who find that that works for them. And again, some of it is cost, but I think a certain amount of that is convenience. I have seen then more in what we would consider your typical independent owned practice. There was a practice I worked with once and I was actually working with the buyer of this practice. The practice was terrific. One of the most profitable practices I've ever seen in kind of a blue collar area in a Dallas suburb offered all the basic services, but didn't do almost anything in the way of surgery, didn't do dentistry or maybe very basic dentistry, Yep. but you know, heartworm tests and vaccinations and preventives and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they did that amazingly well. They had a very loyal clientele, very profitable. So it sold at a good price. The buyer, though, was like, oh, but I want to take this. And now I want these people to do dentals. And now I want Mm. these people to do more, you know, more complicated kinds of surgeries. And this and that and the other. It didn't fit that clientele. He ultimately ran that practice into bankruptcy. Because those people are like, this isn't what I want. It doesn't work for me. And I'm going elsewhere. So it's those kinds of niches as well. So you think 2020 was hard. Well, try being an autistic woman working in food production in the 70s. Think that sounds hard? Well, that's exactly what my March guest, Dr. Temple Grandin, did. She pushed back against the negativity 
the jokes, the abuse, to beat the odds and move animal welfare into the mainstream consciousness across the animal food production industry in the U.S. Starting out in the feed yards in Arizona, there were no women working in the yards. Right, Being so a woman was a much bigger barrier than autism ever was. Okay, tell me more about that. Well, there's a scene in the HBO movie where bull testicles were put on the, my vehicle. That happened. I was kicked out of Scottsdale Feed Yard. Now, one thing that's really accurate in the HBO movie is it shows how my visual thinking works. Okay. That's accurate. They captured that, and the projects are real. Dipping Vat Project, um, the Optical Illusion Room, all the projects were real. The gate. Of all the projects you've undertaken, which one are you the most proud of? Well, different projects did different things. You know, I have kind of the engineering side where it was a piece of equipment I designed. Then I have like the prettiest drawing I ever did. And then I've got um, the thing that probably made some of the biggest change was a very simple scoring system I developed for meatpacking plants. We measure five simple things. They're outcome-based variables. Percentage of cattle stunned correctly on the first shot was one of them. Vocalization while you're handling them, because if you do bad things to cattle, like poking with electric prods, they're going to be vocalizing. And I was then hired by McDonald's Corporation and Wendy's Corporation to um, teach them how to inspect plants using this scoring system. And in the year of 1999, when I did this, I saw more change than I've seen in my whole entire career because it forced people to manage things. Mm. See, early in my career, I made a mistake that a lot of people make. I thought you could build a self-managing cattle handling system. You can't. Equipment so is you not- you don't rep- mean automated, do you? Or do you mean the people would self-manage? Well, not necessarily automated, but- People thought they could replace management with engineering. Okay. Well, it's just not possible. I call it, people want the thing more than they want the management. They're going to buy the magic thing with the same problem in education. Put a, give a computer to every kid. That doesn't make education wonderful. That doesn't replace good teachers. See, that's the management side. And this very simple scoring system that I developed, and it's all written up in in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association and Applied Animal Behavior Science, when I taught the McDonald's auditors how to do it, um, it forced them to repair a lot of stuff. Out of 75 pork and beef slaughterhouses, only three had to build something expensive. Everything else we fixed with maintenance, management, non flooring, lighting, doing simple changes, moving smaller groups of animals, just really, really simple changes. It forced them to manage their plants. And then that six-month period, overnight, was amazing, the change. What was the impact, you know, the measurable, tangible output of those things? Like, what was the big win for the corporations that hired you and the animals? That, that... Well, when the corporations were forced into uh, hiring, well, the reason it got started is you might want to look up something called the McLibel case. And uh, McDonald's spent a lot of money, uh, you know, on the McLibel case. And the people in that case won some of the stuff. And so now they were forced to look at it. So I was hired to bring Bob Langer and other people who worked for McDonald's out to farms and slaughter plants for the first time and look at stuff. And when things were done right, they were happy. And when things were done wrong, they were really upset about it. It was very interesting to watch animal welfare go from an abstraction that you delegate to the PR department, you delegate to the legal department, go to something real that the um, procurement department is going to have to do something about. My friend Dr. Saya Clement was my guest in April. Saya, if you just met her, you'd think was quite quiet, perhaps humble. You might think her in some way shy of retiring. That would be a mistake. For Saya is one of the most driven, determined, yet thoughtful, kind and compassionate people I know. What was really fun about interviewing her was her determination to succeed. But it wasn't just that. It's her love of practice, her genuine love of being in practice and meeting with clients. So in this clip, she shares something that I think a lot of you might benefit from hearing. Some of the joy of relationships, of committing to something, and also some well-timed advice from her Japanese parents on how to cope in a time of crisis. Let's hear from Saya. We want the relationships with the people. We want them to come in and we want them to say, hey, where's Jane? She's not at the front desk today. And we go, oh, well, she's on holiday. And they go, oh, cool. Where does she go? Like, you have the conversations like this all the time. And it makes practice so rewarding, like to go in and actually know people who look at my records laugh because I actually go in and I have um, little screen notes. And most times we write down things like the dog bites or, you know, whatever. 
I write down the, where the dog's name came from or the cat's name or the gerbil's name. Like I see a lot of small exotic patients and I love those appointments, right? These are people that don't get service anywhere else with rather than with us. And, and it's because we walk in and we go, that is the best guinea pig I have ever seen in my life. And I truly mean it. I, uh, you know, if a kid who's allergic to them, I would have millions of them otherwise. <laughs> You'd be like the, the triple home. I like- would have triple, <laughs> I would have guinea pigs tripled all over my house. <laughs> Um, my husband would probably leave me at that point. But but yeah, so we are so interested in the relationship that people have with their pets. And we want to try and prolong that. So as long and as well as we can, that's what drives me in the business. My business partner will also tell you that for me, the financial part is his, like, I am his worst nightmare when it comes to, when it comes to the money. I'm very glad he's there and I have other really smart people that I have purposely hired to do what I'm really bad at, which is not spend money when I shouldn't because I'm the one who's going to go. So, you know, I'm at the conference. I'm going to go to the exhibit hall tomorrow. I'm the... Takes the credit card off. I am. Yeah, they they don't let me take the credit card to the conference anymore. But, you know, like I would be buying a laser and I would be buying all this stuff and anything that's new and shiny, I'm all over that. You and I should never go to the conference exhibit floor together. Precisely. Precisely. But it'd be a very great fun disaster. (laughs) The the vendors would love us. They would. I get that sense. Yeah. But anyway, so to go back to everything I have always done. So again, grew up with two Asian parents. My parents both survived the Second World War, and my dad's family moved to Vancouver, or Richmond. Where in Japan were they? So my mom's family was in Tokyo, and my dad grew up in the country. So he was in a smaller area called Okayama. So his family had actually already immigrated to Canada um, before the start of the war. Yep. And they had a fishing boat, and they lived in Richmond, and, you know, it was kind of the stereotypical Japanese-Canadian story. Well, so what happened was... My parents are incredibly private. And so what happened was I didn't actually hear this story until I was maybe in my 30s. But my dad's family was split up during the war. So he and my grandmother had gone back to Japan. And that was when Pearl Harbor happened. So there was no way they were coming back to Canada. So they ended up staying there for the duration of the war. And my grandfather, who hadn't gone back, was in an internment camp, lost everything, you know. And so it wasn't just in the States that there were these camps. There, there were some in Canada. And it's not something that we're incredibly proud of, but it happened. And so their family was reunited after 12 years and rebuilt everything. My mom immigrated from Japan in 1968. And so they met in Richmond and then they moved to Ottawa, which is where they kind of stayed put. But there's this concept that doesn't translate really well from Japanese to English. I'm going to apologize right now to anyone who speaks fluent Japanese because I'm going to just kind of make a total hash of this because my Japanese is appropriate for home use, but not out in public. But gambare is this, and like I say, it doesn't translate well, but basically it means try hard, do the best with what you're given. So my husband works with an NGO, which was responsible for being one of the first people boots on the ground after the tidal wave hit Fukushima. And I said it to him after he came home and I said, look, you know, that's probably the only country that could have withstood that particular disaster because of that particular ethic. So basically what it means, though, is do your very best. Don't settle. But also don't feel a victim of what goes on around you. Now, are you taking on a massive challenge? Are you faced with a big challenge that seems insurmountable, maybe even impossible? This clip, in fact, the whole episode with my next guest is for you. Dr. Sarah Pisano is in shelter medicine, and it's quite possible that she's had a bigger impact on the outcome of animals in the shelter situation than any other human being on earth. That is a big shout for which I am open to being challenged. But listen hard to Sarah's story. Working in an industry beset by a lack of funding, overpowered with compassion fatigue due to the horrendous number of euthanasias that occur in healthy animals. Dr. Sarah took on a challenge and made the most staggering difference. Let's listen to the transformative effect she's had on tens if not hundreds of thousands of animals' lives across the United States. And if you're thinking of taking on a project or if you're facing a challenge that seems so big, then perhaps you can draw some inspiration from the words of Sarah. Waco, Texas has a poverty rate of 30%. The national average is 12.4%. They have never saved more than 36% of the animals. They said, oh, thanks so much, but we're so poor, you probably can't help us. But the county, the city manager and mayor didn't have a plan B, 
And so they decided to listen. They thought, now I know, they tell us the story, right? They thought we were crazy, but they're like, well, we don't have a plan B, so we'll go with these people and then, you know, see what happens. Within a year, they were over 90%. And that was 2013. They have not euthanized for space since 2014. Okay. So with the success of what you've done there, certain things become true. If you're not right. euthanizing, the building didn't suddenly get three right. times bigger. Right. So there's a whole system of whole cascades system. that have to happen for That's that exactly right. not to get overwhelmed. Talk us through that because this is yes. this, you have you've got you've clearly got a very holistic systems yes. based approach there. Can you give us and I, and I know this will all be in the book, but can you give us a sense of in Waco what what did you do? I will, and I but I just want to tell you a couple of more examples so you really understand the magnitude of this. Anderson County, South Carolina, never saved more than fifty percent. Within three months, they were over 90% and now counting years later. That was probably 2015. I was in Montgomery County, Ohio. Same exact story. They had never saved more than 50%. Three months later, they were over 90%. And their first year with us, with me, they were over 90%. I looked at my colleague, Cameron Moore, who does these assessments with me now with the University of Florida, sent me a spreadsheet because I said, Cameron, we went to El Paso and there were 3,500 less euthanasias the first year. We went to Greenville, South Carolina, and there were 3,000 less euthanasias. We went here. She sent me a spreadsheet of just 18 of the 100 plus shelters that we've done so far. And there were 47,000 less euthanasias the very first year. But here's the kicker. That's not even the whole story. I've never been a funder. Wow. This was within their current resources. And I wanted to tell that story first, Dave, because that was another come to Jesus moment, just like the transition at my private open admission shelter. I just, I must have sat there for an hour. So heartbroken for all the animals. And I know... I think of all my colleagues like Dr. Kate Hurley with the Million Cat Challenge and UC Davis. Like we we talk about this all the time that we think we were in mourning for all those animals that we had been doing it wrong all these years. It was incredibly heartbreaking. It was incredibly humbling, but at the same time, so encouraging. And so this is the message that it doesn't have to be that way. And this formula works, whether you're North, South, East, West, United States, high poverty rate, low poverty rate, rural, urban. And this is a function of not taking in all the animals that don't have to be there, but there's really amazing strategic ways to prevent them from coming in. So you see, I say that as the disclaimer, it's a little bit like you're cheating a little bit because the intake is going down, the live outcome is going up, so it's easier to hit that 90%. But why would you take animals into a shelter if you didn't have to? That's my question. My next guest is Dr. Lisa Radosta. Lisa is determined, ferocious perhaps, and absolutely unafraid to take risks. Jump off the cliff and build the plane around her as she falls. It's a strategy that served her well. But it's a strategy that perhaps doesn't exist or isn't seen that frequently within the veterinary profession. So what can we learn from her? How has she built her cape, her wings, her aura of resilience around her? Let's dig in and hear some advice from her, which seems very pertinent in 2020. So the characteristic was always there. I was always the one who got into a ton of trouble, tons of trouble when I was young, because I didn't think always through every single decision. Right. And my mother was one of those mothers that always said, and I am that mother too, well, you can do anything. So some mothers might be realists and say, realistically, you're not built to be an Olympic level basketball player. You're five feet tall. That was my mom. She's like, I don't know. Maybe you could be one. Like, let's do it. Right. So I grew up thinking that I was undefeatable. And now I don't use that terminology. I use unbreakable. I just used it yesterday or actually a couple days ago. My resident who's very kind of anxious and worried, looked at me and she said, you look tired, because she knew the morning was a really kind of crazed morning, Mm -hmm. emotional team members and stuff. And I said, I am tired. I said, but I'm unbreakable. I'm not defeatable, so I'm going to be fine. And that is always my attitude. Expand upon that a little bit more. I I love what you just said there. 
can you define the two things? What do you see as one and what do you see as the other? Paint the distinction a bit more color there. Between defeatable and breakable. Yeah, yeah. So Why is that important? Because being broken is the foundation, right? And if my foundation is strong, it doesn't matter what hits my house, a hurricane or hailstorm or snow. It doesn't matter, right? That that rhetorical house that is me, if my foundation is strong, if it's not breakable, I simply can't go down. And defeatable feels like I'm in a battle with something mm-hmm. and I'm not in a battle with anything, Yep. right? I'm not fighting anyone because I fought kind of as a young person. That was my attitude was everything is a battle. I'm battling against the fact that I'm a woman. I'm battling against my family structure. Like there is no normal family, first of all, right? (laughs) Oh, we could go there. Yeah. It's crazy. (laughs) And so it's not a battle for me anymore. It's just that I'm not breakable. Mm. Bad things happen to me. Yep. But they can't break me. And when you feel that foundation, your whole frame is different. Something that would make you curl up in a ball and cry before is something that you have that radical acceptance for, right? I'm sure you've heard that term where you can radically accept this is happening right now. Yep. Okay, well, that's how that goes. Yes. And now, what will I do to either completely and fully accept that this is happening? Yep. And what will I do to change it? And because there's always that door that's open, what will I do to change it or change how I feel or change what happens next? You're not breakable. I love this. Are there things that you... How did you build that foundation? Because it sounds like there is plenty going on there. And... I ask that question because you hear the word resilience talked about a lot. Mm -hmm. Clearly, it's important. Yeah. For me, resilience is one of those things that you can teach the concept of, but it's experiential. You you become resilient. You don't learn resilience. Mm -hmm. That's right. How have you built that foundation to be that rock? And, you know, are there any examples you're comfortable to share? And they don't have to be calamitous examples, but moments where you can maybe talk us through the mental conversation you have with yourself when something bad or you perceive to be negative is happening that you maintain that that toughness to work through that right so my dad italian catholic sicilian he made us tough yeah and he didn't have to be first generation american he was third or fourth but that sicilian streak and there was like he had which i my sister and i view it differently he had a crying towel Yep. So if you start crying, he says, here's your crying towel. You got two minutes. When you're done, you hand the towel back to me. Right? It's a perfectly fine way to parent, probably. My sister remembers it horribly. I barely remember it, but that was the attitude was, you know, pull it together now. Right. You're three and you stubbed your toe. That's lovely. Pull it together. Get up. So he gave us that, right? Of course. And then um, I feel like, like, for example, my godchild is 16. She's my niece, but I'm also her godmother. Yeah. Okay. So I was in my residency when she was born. I flew down to be there. I was there when she was born. And I only love my child more than I love this child. Like, I don't know. It's just, you're there. It's your sister's baby. Yeah. And so I had always wanted that I would be that super fantastic aunt and that she would come to me with the things she could never talk to her mother about her. That did not happen. We have a good relationship, but that didn't happen. So recently, what happened was her boyfriend, his first real boyfriend. Yep. And her boyfriend thinks I don't like him, which is not true. I'm just not cuddly. Right. I'm just not like, oh, I'm so happy you're a member of the family. I'm like, hey, how are you? So anyway, it got back to me through my mother that that happened. So I texted my niece and I said, hey, let's talk on the phone. And she's 16, so it took her several days to get back to me. And and during that time, I was stressed. Mm. It's like, I don't want her to think that I don't like her boyfriend. And so I sat for a second and I said, I mean, it really was stressing me. I sat for a second and I said, okay, what is this really about? This is really about that for the past 16 years, you have never had the relationship that you actually wanted to have. It's good, but it's not what you wanted because all stress in my life, at least, comes from hoping something will be different Mm. than it is right now. Yeah. Right? Thinking that it would be or will be different than what you are experiencing. So once I radically accepted that I had a different relationship, the stress dissipated. I had to accept that. And then I thought, well, what should I do? Should I try to change our relationship entirely? Should I maintain what a wonderful relationship we have and accept that that's really cool? What should I do? So I decided to accept what we have 
because I would have to change my niece in order to have something different. And that's not realistic, right? So that was just something that happened just a couple weeks ago. But once you sit and you accept that your expectation is different than what the world has delivered to you, and that you right now cannot change that, and then you look at all the ways that you could change it and what's realistic, it's just easy. One part James Herriot, one part Dexter. That's not a combination you hear every day. But that's exactly the job of Dr. Melinda Merck, a veterinary forensic scientist. Melinda has had a very interesting career with some really high profile cases involving prosecutions in animal abuse. If you've not heard the interview, I strongly recommend you listen to the episode. It's full of fascinating insight, but it's also quite a challenging field. For a lot of us in veterinary medicine, we see the brilliance of working with animals. In veterinary forensics, you're unpicking the past and quite frequently the gruesome past. So I thought it was really interesting to find out how Dr. Merck keeps herself positive in the face of really quite challenging subject matter. And I was a little surprised by her answer. Yeah, it is hard. For me, it's hard to write the report because the goal of the report is to articulate the animal's experience. So you have to tell the story. So I'm really in that empathy. You know, I've got to think about what was the animal experiencing? What would they have been expressing? What would someone have heard or seen? And so to me, that's the hardest, right? The consult's looking at photos like it could be this. That's more analytical. That's solving the mystery like it could be this or that. But when I've really got to talk about animal suffering, that's where it's hard. So how do I manage? Because it's how we manage as veterinarians. you got to compartmentalize, right? It's got to be put there. I make sure that I am not shouldering the whole burden for outcome, that I know that in my head, that I am not responsible for that outcome of this case. I'm doing my job. Let's see how much I can help them or advise. So how I balance that is two two things I'm doing now. I decided I'm going to learn fiddle. I went to Ireland and uh, loved it and found out that my paternal line and uh, maternal line are all violin or fiddle players. So I started learning fiddle uh, last year. So I travel with that. So I make sure I practice. So Irish heritage that you have in your background? I must have it somewhere. I've got to have it. Then I recently started doing virtual reality workouts. So I've got a headset that I travel with and I do boxing for an hour. That goes on my so head. So you have the o- Oculus Quest. I thing. have the Oculus That's Quest. Crazy. That that boxing game, you get pooped. So you have that as well. And I don't. I have a friend who has it and brought it around for the first time. Yes. Beat Saber. Yep. Discuss. Beat Saber. Yeah. That box VR. Oh. Yes, absolutely. It's a great workout. And there's some free, I haven't done it yet. There's an app where you actually get a pet. There's a some <laughs> creature that's your pet that you're supposed to take care of. So that's where I can completely tune out and I'm getting a workout in an hour and I can get that frustration out. That's, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah. I, and I did not see that coming. <laughs> Are there any other things you do? Like, do you have any habits like we hear a lot about mindfulness, uh, journaling, anything there, or is no. it simply no? Because I'm not going to do. I'm not going to talk about. I'm, I, I don't want to journal about what my well, you're, those you, you've all, you've journaled already. What, what's there? Right, you? right. No, I will. I may text or in my. I mentioned my tribe of of women who do this work. Right. right. So you've got and your pop off yeah. valve. You. And they were like, and then, so getting that understanding, just someone knowing what I'm going through without having to go into details. That's all I, you, I don't need to go through it again. Burnout has been a huge issue in our profession for years. And the advent of the restrictions that have been placed upon veterinary practitioners due to COVID, the curbside, the distance from clients, the distance from each other, the interruptions to normal patterns and workflow have all added pressure onto a situation that many were struggling with in the first place. One of the antidotes to burnout is to change your circumstances and one of the ways you change your circumstances is by negotiating. So let's hear from Dr. Meredith Jones, who's an ER vet in Richmond, Virginia. She shares some advice on her tips for negotiating, not just for more money, but perhaps for other things that are valuable in your life too. It's something that I had to learn how to do. I had to get some help from a colleague to learn how to be better at that. 
And certainly that's something, any, any skill that you want to learn, there's, there's going to be a colleague out there who can help you, whether it's negotiation or surgery, you know, someone's going to be out there who can help you learn any skill that you need to know. So I learned how to negotiate, but it, I didn't do, and I haven't done as much negotiation from a, a salary perspective as from a schedule perspective. Okay. And so there's a lot of different things that you can learn to negotiate and, and be happier with your job uh, besides salary. What were some of the tips? Uh, I think that's a great point. You know, wealth comes in many formats, doesn't it? Uh, not having money affects most of the other ones' uh, ability. But then the one thing, if you've not got much money, is you do generally have way more time when you've got way less money. Those two seem to act in opposite opposite directions until you work out passive income streams to an extent. What were some of the tips, like negotiating tips, that have served you quite well? So the, the biggest one is to ask for what you want. Decide what you want, ask for what you want, and see what happens. And it sounds easy, but it's not easy when you're the one doing it and when you have very little experience doing it. And when you think you're not going to get what you ask for and what you'll find, I, I was surprised, you'll find that you get more of what you want just by asking for it. Whereas if you just assume that you're not going to get it, so you don't ask for it, of course, you're, you're not going to get anything that you don't ask for. At some point, you have to step outside of just thinking about the money. And so you can negotiate your schedule, you can negotiate to have more more vacation time, you can negotiate to have your your schedule, if you're a GP or, or a specialist, your schedule set up in a certain way that works better for you. And you're going to be more successful. You may or may not be more wealthy, but you'll be more successful in that. And if, if being more successful in that way, because you've, you've set this up in, in such a way that it works better for you, then it's going to keep you in this profession longer and it's going to keep you working at a higher level and you're going to be happier. So I think, I think we can step outside of money a little bit when we're talking about building wealth because it's, it's not just about money, it's about being happy, being secure, and being able to continue to function at a high level. When you're in the company of Dr. B.J. Miller, you kind of feel calmer, more relaxed. There's an aura about this gentleman and the positivity. You just, you just feel it in your bones. Now, this is quite an extraordinary thing. B.J. has been through some pretty horrific trauma by anyone's standards. A triple amputee at a young age, career dreams, directions, torn to pieces, rebuilt, and new paths taken. BJ's learned to overcome, but actually overcome's the wrong word. Embrace fully the spectrum of human experience. To be able to live with the good and the bad, to roll with the punches and not to get carried away inside your own head. So the art of being aware and the art of being present are central themes within this clip. If you've not heard the whole episode of the BJ, it is balm for the ears in this most trying of years. I encourage you to go take a listen. But for now, let's hear the short clip from him. Oftentimes that becomes a matter of fear, like fear of the future of what could happen to me. Yes. So we look ahead with fear and we look behind ourselves with regret. And I think regret of I think of regret as a fear of the past in a way. Yeah. And they're very much the same sort of sensations that can grip you and lock you down and be paralyzing. And yet we humans are left with this capacity to imagine the future and to relive the past. So I don't I'm not interested in kicking anything out of our experience. So those things are real, but there again they need to be right sized proportionally. The power of the present moment is way bigger, it's way huger, and, but yet it somehow can be in our internal experience the smallest piece of the puzzle. So there's some retraining that needs to happen. So circling back to the coffee making, is that an exercise? Is that a ritual's part of being present on, on the Zen Hospice Project? Yeah. That beautiful ritual mm -hmm. you know, when I, 
I don't know if a guest is the right word or mm-hmm. a patient. What the we call them guests. Guests. Yeah. So when a guest would would transition, I think was the the words you you guys used, which is very beautiful in itself. But you'd have that the flower ritual, mm-hmm. the cookie ritual as well. I, I just loved that. I thought, I'm gonna have to make banana bread and take <laughs> it to my practice when I go up there. <laughs> what other rituals do you build into? I'm just curious. Having seen the coffee ritual, mm-hmm. that feels like that's that's a thing for you. And in my, I have a ping pong ball chaos mind, which is fun mm-hmm. and beautiful and also infuriating in ways. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, that looks really nice. I'm like, you would suck at doing that ritual. <laughs> what other rituals do you have and in what areas of your life? We talk about mm-hmm. exercise as well. That's probably a ritual that, that I stick to the most mm-hmm. uh, closely and enjoy. Yep. Um, but talk me through some of your rituals. Well, you know, it's for one, I only use the word ritual when, when like when you and I are talking, you know, it, otherwise it's, it's a label really, isn't yeah, it? But it is. It's a good one. It's just, it's just to call out in so many ways. I feel like as you're asking me that question, I realize, and like, I don't sit down and think that I am starting a ritual, you know, it's like, of course. And, but I'm all for that too. I mean, people do, there are truly rituals, especially in spiritual traditions that have these beginning, middle and end. For me, it's more like it's approaching my all of my daily life with some sort of awareness and watching at some sort of observational stance of watching myself move through space, watching myself deal with time. And it's sort of an observational position. And I take that often throughout my day. And so when I'm doing something, I have bought into this long ago, like if you're going to do something, do it right. Kind of feels like, even though I do shit wrong all the time, (laughs) but I still aspire to that especially when I'm trying to honor something. So whether like a tea leaf, I have such regard for this camellia plant and that, and for all the care that's gone into cultivating it and to developing its tastes over centuries, etc. I just want to honor all that's in this leaf. And so by trying to do the leaf justice, I end up treating it ritualistically, but that is I treat it carefully. Right. You know, and I want my devotion to it to show and how I handle it, how I, it's just a way of honoring its existence. And I think it's a beautiful way to be. And it doesn't, you don't need to be, have robes and chant and have a candle. You can just approach the rest of your life this way, whether it's your bike or a stranger, or you can just approach them with curiosity and veneration. And just because they exist at all, that's powerful enough to, to have value. Yeah. The word has a color to it, which maybe isn't mm-hmm to everybody's liking and that sort of spirituality touch, but it's yeah. almost a, it's a, a presence and a purple purpose, purposefulness yeah. that it allows you to access something else. Yes. Which again, feels like gratitude. Yes. It feels like gratitude. It feels like humility. It feels like mm. I am in service to the tea leaf in a way as much as it's serving me. The, I'm connected. Feel, exactly. That's, yeah. that's super right on Dave. I, Connection is the thing, and a connection to other people, connection to animals, connection to things. I, I don't much care. Connection to just connection. Please, when I'm working with patients, I you know find something to care about, find something to feel connected to, and it doesn't really much matter what it is. Failure is something that happens in life. It happens in veterinary medicine, and one of the good things for us is that we have the chance to put it right almost immediately. We fail at a case today, we learn from it. We do it better tomorrow. That's not the case if you're an elite Olympic athlete, however. Failure at the Olympic Games in Rio in 2016 for our next guest, Dr. Laura Muir, meant that she would have to wait another four years to compete in Tokyo 2020, an event that was cancelled and moved to 2021. For a profession that struggles with failure, a conversation with somebody operating at this level with insight into both the mind of the veterinarian and the mind of the elite sports person might provide some clues as to how we might deal with failure better in our day-to-day lives. So probably kind of the biggest upsetting result would probably be um, the biggest stage, unfortunately, was uh, was Rio Olympics in 2016. So I went in, I think I was third ranked on time. So more or less kind of to be expected to be there, thereabout for a medal. And then, yeah, I was in the final and it came to the bell and there was three of us quite clear and with one lap to go but one of the girls had put in a really hard fast lap and that was probably the only tactic that me and my coach hadn't really thought of um you know we were, we're usually very very good we have loads of different plans different scenarios. but that was such an unusual 
sort of way for someone to take the race on. And it was about the one thing I probably physically at that point wasn't prepared for. So I went with it and uh, the lactic sniper hit. (laughs) And I went from third with with half a lap to go to seventh when I crossed the line. So that was, um, yeah, that was really, really gutting. But at the same time, you know, people were thinking, you know, I maybe could have scraped a, a bronze if I'd been able to hang in and run this race slightly differently, maybe even got a silver. But I think if I'd done that and not gone with the move, then, you know, I definitely would have given up on the gold. So, yeah, maybe I could have got one of the minor medals, but I definitely would have lost gold. And for me, I was kind of like, well, you know what? We gave it a shot to win. We didn't give it a shot to medal. We gave it a shot to win. And if I'd left that move, then I would have been like, what if? What if I could have won gold? So I was kind of, I got over it really quickly, actually, because, you know what, I went for it. It didn't work out, but I gave myself the best chance to win. Um, and if I hadn't gone with the move, then I definitely wouldn't have won. So, yeah, it was it, that was a really, really hard time you know, to lose out potentially on Olympic medal and how that could have changed things. Um, but at the same time, you know, I was really proud of myself. My my coach was like, yeah, well, you know, you went for it. So you did did everything that I could. I just physically wasn't ready for that sort of race. So. Yeah. So yeah, that was a big disappointment that I kind of like got over quite quickly in the sense that, you know, I gave it all I could. And then I've had, yeah, a few injuries that have disrupted, unfortunately, um, both in world championship years. So 2017 had a stress fracture going into home world championships in London. Yeah. And I came fourth by, I think it was like a, a tenth of a second. That would you just come back from that, yeah. hadn't you? Yeah, so, so I'd only been back for a couple of months. So for me, that was, you know, it was, it was good performance but come fourth on a home soil was that was pretty gutting and then I had injury again this year tearing my calf just a couple months out from um, another world championships yep. um, but then I came back to run my one of my second second fastest time ever so yeah I've had a, a few rough patches but I think I've I've always been able to spring back from them pretty well so it's just a matter of getting the, the consistency and I think and being physically in the right place. Is there a thought process that goes on in your head that and I, I again I'm just thinking of you know, thinking of the veterinary graduates who go out there, they encounter tough things. Mm. Like it feels like we are built up and built up and built up as veterinarians, particularly in our school years, like usually excelling in school. Then we go to vet school and it's relatively hard to fail at vet school. It's not impossible. Mm-hmm. It's relatively, you know, to the point where you don't come out the other side with your degree. And everybody's kind of rooting for you. And then mm. you meet clients and suddenly they're not necessarily rooting for you. They're, they want you to help their pet, but they don't. Yeah. And what I can see out there is people then struggle with that sort of inner mental battle. And, and you know, they use the phrase Im- imposter syndrome. And mm. I don't like to call it a syndrome because I don't think that's what it is. But, or in all cases. But what's the process? Like, do you, you sit down with your coach and dissect that? How do you get yourself from that, particularly the, you know, the, the fourth place sounds like that stung you more. Yeah. How did you move from one emotional state to another? And, and what were the emotional states that you try and capture that serve you best? I think it's, for me, I guess, I always have to, I always go back to the fact I just love running for what it is. And so for me, when I have an injury, it's just those little baby steps of getting back running. I think I think it's very easy to forget, you know, how lucky you are to, to run not only fast but pain free yeah and you take it so much for advantage so when you're injured and you can't even run or when you do start running you're in a bit of pain you're in a bit of discomfort you're like oh i remember when i used to run with no problems at all so i think it's very easy to take that yeah for advantage so for me it's always about just trying to get back just get back to running because that's what you love to do and then i'll think about the competition on the horizon or whatever is coming up and for me it's just getting back into things yeah so you're setting like small near field goals that yeah. align with a, a broader you know a bigger thing in the distance yes yeah, so I guess it's um yeah you know can I um you know walk around without pain today and then can I do maybe a couple of calf raises and everything feels okay is it can go for a little run a slightly longer run can I start to do sessions can I start to wear spikes and it's just all about little little targets I guess little goals because if you want to go right I want to go from here to running amazing that's not going to happen so yeah it's just having those little goals those little things and trying to work towards the big thing rather than look at the big thing and panic and see how not to get there, right. you know, for the little steps, yeah. Our last guest of the year was Dr. Caroline Murray. Her handle on Instagram is The Wilderness Vet, a name born out of her wanderlust, her desire to experience this life to the max, to travel, to go around the world and to help others. In this clip, Caroline reminds us that we all 
have reason to live and that life itself is short. So it's important to find meaning wherever that may be, whether that's through traveling, relationships, whether that's the meaning the work you do gives you. Whatever it is, enjoy it and make the most out of it. It makes you really realize what you do want and you don't want. And so another thing that happened was around the time of my dad dying really horrifically, quite a few of my friends committed suicide who were not suicidal. And again, that really makes you realize life is short. Was that within veterinary medicine or? Three of them were vets and one was bipolar, which I discovered later. They're often really mentally unstable and unfortunately frequently do commit suicide, which I didn't realize at the time. And weirdly, the last time I'd seen him, he was like, my life is really great. He literally had the most amazing life, but, you know, they have big ups and downs. Yeah. He was a really successful businessman and an amazing person. And those things that happened and a lot of the people were quite young really shocked me into realizing life really is short. You don't know when someone's going to die or like I was in Christchurch in New Zealand when the earthquake happened and people died or had really life-changing injuries. And my dad worked really hard for a really long time and then retired and got really ill really soon after and never got to enjoy his life. So I think that really pushed me to travel more recently because you just don't know what's going to happen. And another thing that my Cameroonian friend taught me, which is really important, is spend time with the people that you like and love and tell them that you like and love them because we often end up being so busy doing our lives (laughs) that we don't really do the human friendship things. So that's it for another year in Blunt Dissection. Though this year has been hard, I hope the episodes have brought you some joy, some inspiration, and perhaps a little bit of light into your life. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, hang in there. This too will pass. I want to say thank you to all my guests for the year. I want to say thank you to the sponsors that have supported the show. And most of all, I want to thank you for listening. I appreciate you. We will see you next year with another stellar array of guests. Until then, be safe, be well, and be happy.